Welcome to the Farcast here at Shadron State College. I'm Daniel Binkard with my co-host, Alex Helmbrecht, and we're here with Elizabeth Kratz, who is an assistant professor in psychological sciences. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good to have you on. So let's get right into our questions. How long have you been at CSC, and what classes are you currently teaching? Um, So I started here last July, so this is my second year teaching. Um, with my first semester being last fall, and I am currently teaching educational psychology, introduction to psychology, social psychology, and developmental psychology. Are those classes online or they're no? They're face- all in person. They're face to face. They're all face to face. Okay. Yep. So I'm teaching five because um, I have two sections of intro psych. Um, so it's four preps, five classes. That sounds like a busy year. It is yeah. extremely busy. <laughs> Welcome to <laughs> teaching. Right? I'm not sure I have time to think, but. <laughs> so you said, it, so this is the beginning of your second year. Yes. So with that first year, was there maybe some growing pains? I, I'm assuming maybe you were a teaching assistant before or something like that. but To some degree. So I taught, um, I was really fortunate to be able to teach for four years at Ohio State, both as a teaching associate, a, a TA, and as an adjunct. Um, and so, but Ohio State, since we were in, my PhD is in educational psychology. So, you know, they assume we know how to teach. Um, and so they really kind of say, this is the book that we use, go to town. Um, and so, I mean, I was an independent instructor um, functioning okay. in very much the same capacity that I do here for four years. Um, I just technically didn't have the title. Um, but here I get to teach more classes. So kind of it was the first time I taught social psych. It was the first time I taught intro psych. Um, and a lot of the content between developmental and ed psych overlaps, but it was my first time teaching an official developmental psych class. So, you know, coming up with new preps is always hard. But, yeah, um, sure. But as far as the job duties, those were pretty pretty comparable. Well, and I think we've heard from a lot of our faculty, uh, especially uh, the ones who've, who've been so generous to appear on this, uh, that Shattern State really is a teaching institution. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you know, kind of, you're really out there in front of the students. You're not hiding in, the, in an office oh, or no. doing yeah. anything like that. <laughs> I'm in front of them every day oh, for great. multiple hours, which is, is what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So that's when I was looking for jobs, that's what I wanted um, was to be working with the undergrads, with them in person, um, not hiding in an office. Yeah, you know? exactly. So. Um, leave that to me and Daniel. We can do that for, for <laughs> everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned Ohio State. Uh, tell us a little bit about your educational background. So I actually, well, you know, I tell my students it's okay if they don't know what they want to do yet because I think I had six majors. Oh. Um, before I graduated with my undergrad. So I, I transferred twice, and I think I had six different majors. Um, but I ended at Ohio State with um, a degree in middle childhood math and science education. And then I taught eighth grade for a little while. Um, and I, I didn't like eighth graders when I was an eighth grader. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they don't get better when you're an adult. So I was like, uh, maybe the middle school thing is not so much my cup of tea. Um, and so then I got my master's in early childhood education. Um, and then I ended up getting my PhD. Um, I got my master's from Delta State University uh, in Mississippi. And then I went back to Ohio State for my PhD in educational psychology. I'm curious, what were the six majors? Oh, so I started out as a pre-vet equine double major and then so that's two and then I was a musical theater major for like a hot minute and then I was a straight theater major for a little while and then I was a wildlife science major and then I went to um, education 
So we need to find this, a, a profession that encompasses all of those. Right, So yeah. maybe like a... You could like run a big game preserve where you give tours and you, <laughs> you, and you in sing. a Shakespearean style <laughs> and, yeah. and musical. <laughs> and blank. we sing, you know. You speak uh, in blank verse. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, uh, I always tell my students I, I couldn't pick what I wanted to learn because I, I like to learn everything. And so eventually I just decided to study learning and I just gave up on picking a thing and I just said, well, fine, I'll just learn about learning and we'll call it good. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That works. <laughs> Uh, so where did you grow up? And obviously there may have been a uh, shift around there, but uh, was there a point? Did you always know, was psychology always in the background or how did that evolve? You know, it wasn't. So I grew up in Wilmington, Ohio, which is a relatively small town for Ohio, not yeah. by Nebraska standards. But um, And psychology was not even on my radar. It was not something that was offered at my high school. So right. it wasn't something I had any kind of interaction with. Um and even into my PhD program, I was interested in the education part of educational psychology. Um, and so it wasn't until um, sort of into the program well that I started branching out and realizing how much overlap there was with things like social and developmental psych and really kind of getting interested in the areas where those things overlap with the educational world um, and influence what happens in school and things like that. Um, and so it's really been in the last, like, four or five years that I've kind of made the shift into psychology from kind of being a pure education world person, which is very different because I'm not, yeah. like, I, I see the education faculty now and again <laughs> in meetings sure, and stuff, yeah. but, like, I'm not in that world anymore. So it's been a very different to be here because um, ed psych at Ohio State is its own entity. And so, you know, you're still surrounded by education people all day. Oh, Okay. So yeah, you, how did you wind up here? I mean, Ohio to, to Nebraska. I don't. I don't figure that it's too far. But um, were you looking for a place where you could teach a lot? Or, or yeah. So when I finished my doctorate, um, you know, I kind of went into my doctorate saying like, I don't know what I want to do in academia. I like teaching. I've never done research, so I don't know if I like that. And I came out kind of saying, research is is fine. It's cool, but that I'm good at teaching. That's what I'm good at. It's what I like. It what gets me out of bed in the morning, um, and that's what I want to do. And, you know, if I took a position someplace like Ohio State, you know, my professors there never saw undergrads. Undergrads were taught almost completely by TAs, um, and most of my TAs were phenomenal. So, like, nothing against them at all, but, like, as a, as a faculty member, that's not what I want to do. So I was applying across the whole country um, to small teaching-oriented colleges, um, and it just so happened that Shadron was a really good fit for what I wanted and what my family wanted. Um, you know, I have my son moved with us and, and my husband and my husband works online, thank goodness, so he can work from home. Um, and we wanted my son to grow up in a place where he knew people and it wasn't just a number in a massive school district. And mm -hmm. um, and so that just kind of fit really well and it all worked out. Yeah, I, um, we have some friends who live in Minneapolis and they talk about they wanted to move, but they didn't want to move to where it was because the school district where they currently live is really great. And I, I never even have thought about things like that from living in small yeah, town such a big factor. It really is. It is, yeah. All right. Well, Elizabeth, uh, let's talk a little bit about your research. So you mentioned it focuses on dialogue in classrooms, mm -hmm. especially the relationships that develop in the classroom and having difficult conversations. 
So, yeah, what's yeah. all that about? <laughs> so I, you know, I got into my Ph.D. program because I was I taught eighth grade um, for a year and then I taught adult ed, which was mostly GED prep classes um, for two and a half years after that. And I really felt like I was at a loss because I had been through at that point two education programs. And I felt like I was doing all the things that they told me to do. They were like, you know, do this in your classroom. This is good teaching, whatever. And it wasn't working. And I didn't know what to do. And I would try to go online and I try to read about things. And, you know, I just I couldn't find. And I was like, where is this information? Why is this information not available to me? Um, and so I was like, I'm going to get a Ph.D. and I'm going to make sure this information is available to people. Um, and now I know that all that research exists. It just wasn't something that I was taught how to find or how to read effectively. Um and so I really wanted to get into research that had a very real, very practical, applicable um, meaning for teachers and students in classrooms. You know, a lot of research um, and nothing against it, but a lot of research is done in labs. It's done survey based. That's not something that's interesting to me. I want to be in the classroom studying what is happening, what people are saying, how it's functioning. So that way we can help teachers do it better, because um, I just feel like education is one of those things that can be so phenomenal when it works. And when it doesn't work, it gives kids anxiety and it hurts their mental health and it hurts their capability feelings and all of those things. Um, and so, you know, I was really, really fortunate to get in a lab with um, Dr. Su Jung Lin at Ohio State, and she is doing um, a lot of different projects. But one of them was based on literature-based free-flowing conversations in fifth grade classrooms. And we literally went into the classrooms, we trained the teachers, and then we sat and we watched while these kids had these really in-depth conversations about things where they'd read a story about something like bullying. And then they'd sit down and they'd talk about it. And you'd see kids who were failing every single subject in class come out and say things that were really thoughtful and profound. And the teachers were reflecting in interviews with us like, I didn't know that kid had that in them. I've never seen that side of them before. And so we really, there were several kids in our project that went from failing their English class to getting an A in their English class over the six weeks that we were in their classroom. Oh, that's you great. Know? And so we really got to see the transformative power of those conversations. Yeah. Um, and one of the schools that we were working in had, was an inner city school with a largely immigrant population. They had kids in this one fifth grade classroom from 19 different countries. Wow. Um, and so to hear these kids, one of the stories that we had them read was about a family in the 1960s who traveled south in a gold Cadillac and how they were accused of stealing this car by the police and things like that. Um, and to hear them sit down and talk about things that happen on the bus that align with the types of things that happened in the story in the 1960s was just absolutely astounding. And then you interview their classmates and their classmates are like, I had no idea these things were happening in my school. Um, and so, and, and these are, you know, 10 and 11 year olds. Mm -hmm. These are not mostly grown kids that, um, they're, they're just, they're little, um, but they are experiencing these things and thinking about these things. And when you give them permission to talk about these experiences in school, it has a massive impact on their well-being, their happiness and their performance. Um, and so that's really where my research has come from. And so, you know, we saw in looking at that data set we saw that some of the teachers, some groups of students had these really profound, deep conversations and others didn't. And so I asked the question, well, well, why? Why is it that even with the same teacher, some groups of five kids are blossoming and some groups are just arguing with each other? 
right? Um, and and what my dissertation is on is on the equity that's present within those groups. So if we think about equity, we have two main types. One is participatory, which is can I speak and be heard, right? Am I not getting interrupted? That kind of stuff. And the other is relational. Are people considering my ideas of value equitably within the group? And so I took... 72 discussion transcripts, thousands of lines of speech, and I coded it for evidence that kids were considering other people's thoughts and when they were interrupting each other to see if we could quantify equity in a way that let us analyze how the teachers and then also how the teachers were engaging with those students to either support or inhibit equity um, to see if then we could maybe train them to be more supportive of equity in those discussions so that our struggling students, for instance, can have more of a say so that they can become more participatory and have their ideas taken seriously. Um, and so, you know, that's something that's not really been done before. So a lot of the research on equity so far has either been focused on things like gender and racial equity rather than interpersonal equity, um, or it's been really, really in-depth descriptive stuff, but it hasn't really gone to the dialogue level and said, can we look at a conversation and see what's happening to reflect equity um, and see if it is present or not, or to what extent it's present and how teachers are interacting with that equity and responding to it. Um, and so that's kind of where my research has evolved from. And then this most recent paper that you mentioned um, is actually not a research article. It's um, in a publication specifically for teachers and uh, pr other practitioners in schools that it's called theory into practice. So it's essentially taking education research and then translating it into a way that's more applicable and shorter, less academic sounding, easier to understand for people who are literally doing it in the classroom. And so myself and some of my colleagues were like, hey, we could put this together and really translate some of these findings for teachers who are actually engaging in these conversations with these kids. Yeah, great to be able to apply it. Yeah, it definitely that's, is. That's the dream, you know, is to be able to, to yeah. make all this academic mumbo jumbo that we talk about actually matter. Yeah. So, so I don't know if I will have the terms right, but was it a was your study primarily qualitative or was it like a mixed method? It was mostly quantitative with okay. a little bit of qualitative research. Um, so I did a, a qualitative case study that I published um, a few years ago. And it sort of set the stage. Um, it was extremely in-depth, looking at only two groups of students, comparing them. And then based on those findings, I was able to generalize um, to the entire data set of students and to do a quantitative study for my dissertation. Okay. Um, so I could kind of tell when Daniel asked this, you know, you kind of got a little pep in your step when you're talking about <laughs> research. Where did that Where did that interest begin? I mean, it, it clearly it, it is a you as an educator, it, it's a it's a passion for you. Where did that start? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I can remember being in the second grade and getting excited when people would ask me to explain something. And, like, even that far back, like, I liked to teach people stuff. But I never really, you know, my mom was a teacher, and so I knew how hard it was. And she was always kind of like, don't be a teacher. It's really, really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. Um, and I ignored her, and she was mad at me for a minute. But it worked out okay. So, you know, um, and so I never really considered that for a career path. Um, but then, you know, I had all these different majors, and nothing really seemed to fit. And I liked the content, but then I'd do an internship. And I was like, this job just isn't what I like um, until I got in a classroom. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is me. This is what I like to do. This is what I'm good at. Um, 
And I said, you know, quit fighting it and just get the education degree. Um, And the research, I think, stems from that because I see so many teachers struggling and they really want to do what's right for these kids, but they don't know how. And so for me, the research is just the next logical step of like, I've been fortunate and privileged enough to get the education that like, I am by far not a perfect teacher, but I have the expertise and the knowledge to help people understand the psychology behind learning. And then when you understand how and why people learn, it becomes easier to support them in that learning. Um, And so that's really especially in an era in which, you know, people are being limited in what they can talk about in classrooms and what they can have their students read and things like that, you know, to really, I try to really advocate for, like, trust the kids with their own minds. They have the capacity. They're thinking about these and they're experiencing these things anyway. And when we can bring that into schools, we can not only support them in becoming more empathetic, but we can also support them in developing their own identity and their own critical thinking skills in ways that just don't happen when all we do is hammer content into them and get them to memorize it. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the opportunity to support them in becoming the best versions of themselves that they can be um, by asking them questions like, where have you seen racism? You know, and even in my college classes, I've had some students who have come out and said, oh, yeah, this happened to me at Walmart. This happened to me wherever here in town. And some of my other students are like, wait, what? They're absolutely blown away that those issues still exist because if you don't deal with it every day, you don't see it, Mm -hmm. you know, and and giving them the forum to build that understanding and that knowledge, I think, is really important. And it's something that I have seen have a really big impact in students' lives. Uh, Elizabeth, has the pandemic had any effect on classroom interactions? I I think... You know, from my experience with all these Zoom meetings that I've had to sit through, that's got to be. But uh, has that factored into any of of your research um, as it's continuing? Um, Well, so I actually planned a completely different dissertation. Um, And then the pandemic happened. And I actually had planned to go into schools and collect data um, based on my own sort of taking the discussion data and then making a few changes to it um, and then training new teachers and seeing... Um, if we could support teachers and students in building healthier relationships in the classroom, because we know that um, it's really, really difficult once a kid has a bad relationship with a teacher, a lot of times it's a kindergarten teacher, that tends to follow them all the way through high school, which leads to lower grades, lower well-being, higher risk of dropping out, right, all this stuff. So if we can get teachers in to fix that and have a positive relationship with these struggling students, we can have a really big impact on their academic trajectory. So that's what I initially set out to do and then all the schools shut down yeah um so i ended up having to use some data that we had already collected um and i'm really happy with how it turned out so like i'm not mad about that but um it had that impact on my research i know a lot of people are starting to study um the differences between online learning for the social environment and things like that um i have not been part of that so much but i know it's happening um but i mean even in my own son just seeing the difference in like what school seems like for him, having been at home for a year, mm-hmm. you know, th- then that reintegration back into school was, has been really challenging, especially for the really little little kiddos because they never had a normal school. You know, if they miss right. kindergarten, then suddenly they're expected to be first graders and they don't know how. Yeah, yeah that, that's got to be a factor. What grade is he in then? He's in fourth. Okay, so at least he had had that start. Thankfully, yeah. yeah. Um, so he got to finish first grade. And then he was out uh, his second grade year. Okay. 
And I guess I've heard that myself, too, that some of the younger kids, I think, Alex, you mentioned that to me, that Mm -hmm. the younger kids that didn't have that same kind of socialization that that you'd expect to. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one. Elizabeth, was your research, was it focused on public school students or or was it a mix between public and private? We were working entirely in public schools. Okay. Okay. Uh, So very applicable to, to... our listening audience, I'm sure yes. most of us probably went yeah. to public schools. and Yeah. Um, and they were teachers from around Columbus. Um, so as you can imagine with Ohio State right there, Columbus City Schools gets pretty inundated oh, yeah. <laughs> um, with research think. requests, right? <laughs> Everybody wants to come study their kids. Um, and so they're pretty selective about who they let in their school. But we were working with several different schools around um, kind of the center of the city. And so because of that, we were able to have very, very different populations of students at different schools, which from a research perspective and trying to consider latent variables and everything like that is not great, mm-hmm. right? But from a, a pr- an applied perspective was phenomenal because we're like, this is working for kids from immigrant families in one of the poorest suburbs of the city. And it's working in this, you know, mostly black and, and uh, Caucasian middle-income suburb. And so, the you know, a lot of times you don't see that kind of generalizability. Mm-hmm. Um, but because if you think about the, the nature of a conversation, it's very adaptable to the interests and the ideas of who's in the room. And so because of that, you know, we could read the same story and have totally different discussions. And that's what we saw happening was that the discussions in one group of students were went a totally different direction than the, the same the discussion about the same story in a different group of students, mm-hmm. um, which was really neat. And so I think this idea, not necessarily the specific intervention that we were working with, but this idea that kids need to have conversations in class, not just be talked at. Right? They need to have someone listen to their ideas. They need to practice putting their ideas into words. They need to have their peers challenge them and be like, that doesn't seem right. Like, that doesn't make sense and have to revise their own thinking. Um, those are important thinking skills. But then if we can get them thinking about things like bullying, why do people bully? Right? Well, maybe it's because they're really insecure themselves and they can start to build that empathy and understand how these social interactions come about. Then not only can we benefit them as thinkers and as learners, but we can also benefit the social interaction in the classroom. Um, And we know that when there's a positive social culture in a classroom, kids learn more, they're happier, they have higher well-being, higher Mm -hmm. achievement, right, all that stuff. Yeah, much more inclusive environment. Mm -hmm. Now, kind of to switch gears a little bit, but I've heard from a reputable source that you enjoy baking and gardening. Talk a little bit about that. Um, So I didn't know that I liked gardening. I've always liked baking, but I didn't know I liked gardening until you I think I wanted, in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, then I, it was one of my, my 47 majors. No, um, I decided I wanted to grow a tomato because, you know, growing up, my grandma had a huge garden and we would always get tomatoes from her garden and a tomato from a garden tastes nothing like a tomato from the grocery store. And I was like, and then, you know, my grandparents had to move in out of the farm, so we didn't have grandma's tomatoes anymore. I was like, I'm going to grow some tomatoes. And then I was kind of like, this is really, like, therapeutic. I Mm -hmm. like this. And now my house is covered in plants. My office is covered in plants. My son, like, grabs my arm and drags me past the plant section in Walmart. He's like, Mom, (laughs) you don't need any more plants. Um, (laughs) So, you know, and and I've built some raised beds. Um, I mostly like to grow things I can eat is the preference. Um, My garden did really badly this year. You know, trying to figure out the shift in climate, 
coming from this is my first Nebraska garden. It, it didn't do so hot. But the summers here are dry and hot. Yeah, really <laughs> dry and hot. I was unprepared. Um, so I think hopefully next year I'll do a little better. Um, but yeah, I really I've got chickens now too. So it was always oh, the fun. joke in grad school. I was telling my husband for years, I want chickens so we can have fresh eggs. And he's like, when you finish your PhD, I will get you chickens. There we go. And so all my friends in PhD school knew that. And so when I graduated, they were like, you're going to get your chickens now, right? And they like, we're like teasing my husband, like, you better go buy some chickens. So we have chickens. They started laying a couple months ago. Um, so I got my PhD chickens. It took us a while to build a coop and get all that stuff set mm-hmm. up, you know. So hopefully next year I'll have some fresh vegetables. Um, I Last year we got that email saying that they had the um, the wild plums, that the, the wild plum trees were um, – Overproducing, and they were afraid the deer were going to, like, damage the trees. And so I went and I picked a bunch. I was like, I've never even heard of a wild plum, but let's see what this is about. And then I made a bunch of jam, and it was so good. And then I kept, like, watching the trees, and I was like, nobody else is picking it. (laughs) So I went. I think I picked, like, 30 pounds of wild plums last year and turned (laughs) it all into jam. And we had enough jam to last from in the, like, early fall until, like, February. So, like, that's that's the dream is that I'll be able to can enough tomatoes and, like, pickles and all jam and everything. Um, I planted a bunch of my own wild plum trees at home and some Sandhills cherries and awesome. all that stuff. So hopefully here in a few years. Um, and then baking. I've liked to bake since I was little. I can remember my mom... <laughs> would make our birthday cakes and then you know when I was too little to really bake she would just give me icing and food coloring and let me go to town and I would have these ridiculously elaborate cakes with you know three inches of sprinkles on them and like I'm sure they did yeah that's yeah, the way to go. <laughs> it was intense um and then as I got you know to be like 9 10 11 I started baking it and then decorating it myself um, and then my poor mother tried to do the same thing with my brother, thinking, you know, this is a great learning activity. And my brother's like, ugh, can I be done? <laughs> um, but then, actually, in undergrad, I had to stop eating gluten. And so now my baking consists of trying to make things taste as good without gluten as they do with gluten. And really, I'm also a vegetarian. So taking kind of childhood favorite recipes and adapting them to make them gluten-free and vegetarian and not taste terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what I do. The, and I've actually, I figure I've done it well when the carnivores in my family, you know, my dad and my brother can eat it and not complain about the fact that it's tofu. Um, and I've got a few things that they will eat and not even notice the tofu because um, my dad's always like, tofu, you know, and I'm like... But you, did you know that you were eating tofu? I don't think you did. <laughs> I, I had a lasagna tofu one time that was really good. Yeah. So, I mean, it can be done. It can. I make chili nice. dogs with a tofu chili. Mm. Um, and I make a, a chicken pot pie with tofu instead of chicken and then gluten-free biscuits on the top. It's really, really good. And then I make um, – my husband grew up in, in East Tennessee, so I make uh, biscuits and gravy for him with tofu. Um, and I just season it like you would season sausage, and it's really good. Hmm. You'd never know unless you were told. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. So final main question for you, Elizabeth, is what are some of your other interests away from work Mm. when you're not tending the garden? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, when I'm not tending the garden. I love to read. Um, So I, my friends got me into the Libby app because I was like, you know, I don't have time to go to the library and check out books and then I can't read it in time to get it back. And they were like, you need this app. And I was like, but I don't want to read on a Kindle. But they convinced me to try it and it is life changing. 
So if anybody doesn't have it, you link your library card to this app, and then it gives you access to all of the ebooks and audiobooks that your library has access to, which is often a very much bigger repertoire of books hmm. than they physically have on the shelf. Um, yeah. And so I have been reading and reading and reading on my iPad because um, I can just get the books there and read it like I would you would on a Kindle. Yeah. Um, and that has been very exciting. Um, so I've been doing a lot of that. We go to as do as much hiking as we can. Um, so, you know, I've I wanted to be a paleontologist pre, you know, pre-vet major and wildlife science major and all that. I was supposed to be a paleontologist, um, and so I'm kind of a geology nerd a little bit. So we, uh, I like to go look at rocks and fossils. So this summer we actually went to Iceland. Oh, um, beautiful. Because I've wanted to go there since I was a kid, and I found out about the volcanoes and how many different things exist only in Iceland. Mm -hmm. You know, that, like, it's a very unique geological place. Um, so we, we went and did that. And so I like to hike, and we go up to Badlands and um, several different parks in South Dakota and hike around. And I have three dogs, so some of them we can take them and some of them we can't. And um, my brother lives in the near Seattle. And so I've been able to go visit him and hike around. And so that's yeah, kind of, that's great. That, if, if it's outside, I pretty much like to do it. Hiking, camping, canoeing, or kayaking more than canoeing, anything like that. Mm -hmm. I grew up around horses, too, so that's a big oh, yeah, yeah. hobby of mine. I'm get hoping the fresh air and everything some. else. Yeah, <laughs> here in a little. My son's really into it, too. So we, we have horse fences ready to go. We just don't have the horses yet. <laughs> well, you're ready for them. Yeah. Um, so we've reached that portion of our interview where we just have kind of some quick questions. So the first thing that comes to the top of your mind. Okay. What's a favorite movie of yours? You know, I really love the old classic 1950s and 60s musicals, the golden uh, age of musicals, you know, the sound of music mm -hmm. and um, all that stuff. I grew up watching the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers musicals with my mom. Um, n nobody in my house wants to watch them with me now, which is really sad. <laughs> it makes me miss my mom because um, we used to watch all those, and they have the, the flowy dresses, and they wear those totally impractical high heels, and they do the yeah. soft shoe. Yep. Oh, I love just about any of those. Nice. Um, would probably fit the bill. What is a hidden talent of yours? Ooh, I was thinking about this because um, I was watching some of your other interviews, and so I was like, I need to have an answer prepared. I can do the cup song. From, um, I can't even think of the movie now. Anna Kendrick was in it. And they had the acapella group. Oh, Pitch Perfect. Pitch Perfect, yeah. yeah. So I've been doing the cup song for probably about 10 years before that movie came out. And I didn't know there were words to it. But when I was in like middle school, it was a game. And you had to try to do the rhythm on the cups. And you had to pass the cup around the table, and if you dropped it or messed up the beat, you were out. Oh, right. This is the one with, like, multiple cups, and you bang them around and, like, little drums, This one right? just has one, yeah, but okay. it's, a, it's a tapping, like, spinning, and you have to spin the cup and make all the different rhythm noises. Um, and Shoot, I wish we had one in here. Yeah, I would do yeah, that for you. Yeah, demonstration. <laughs> my, uh, yeah, my eighth graders thought that was the coolest thing because that was, like, right after that movie came out. Oh, yeah. And so I, that was, like, my bribe was, like, if you guys get all your work done today, I will do the cup song at the end of class. And it, it like, it worked. They were very into it. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so this would be good for you since you said you're an avid reader. If you could have a conversation with any fictional character, who would it be? I suppose it doesn't have to be in a book, but... That's so hard. 
yeah, some, a lot of good fictional characters. There's so many. You know, my favorite book for so many years, and I call it a book, it's actually a series of books, but I came across it as a single volume where all the books were bound together. It's called The Enchanted Forest Chronicles, and it's by Patricia C. Reed. And I think I would want to hang out with one of the characters in there. Um, it's, you know, they there's dragons and there's witches, and there's an enchanted forest, obviously, because um, it's called The Enchanted Forest Chronicles. And it's just... It's one of those books that there's there's nothing in it that makes you, like, scared or stressed or worried, but it has enough action that it's so engaging. And it's one that if I just am having a really bad day and I need something really comforting, I go back to that. Yeah. And so I think I would want to talk just about anybody in those books. Uh, I would be happy to have a conversation with. Just hang out. Just hang out. I feel like we would get along really well. I've also always wanted to, to meet Anne Shirley from um, Anne of Green Gables. Okay. Because as a kid, I came across those books, and I just felt like we were, like, connected. Like, I felt like we got each other. Um, and so I feel like we would be really good friends if I could meet Anne Shirley. That would be really exciting. Yeah. What is your favorite thing to do in the fall? <sighs> All of the things. That's a lot of good things. I <laughs> like to pick apples. I like to pick pumpkins. I like to carve the pumpkins. I like to make soup. I made potato soup the other day, and it was really, really good. Um, I like to just, like, walk around and look at the leaves. There's not so many of those here. <laughs> There's not very yeah, many trees. Not, not some some of the river beds in there. Yeah, yeah. find some trees. Um, no, I just, like, fall is my favorite time of year. It might have something to do with the fact that my birthday's in the fall. Um, as a child, that might have biased me. Sure. But, sure. you know, that just it's the good. air is getting colder. You're finally not sweating. You mm-hmm. get to bring out your sweaters and your boots. Um, I might have been singing a song about getting to bring out my boots in <laughs> one of my classes. Um, yeah, you get to wear your comfy clothes. Yeah. Wear, yeah, it like, is the season. You know, it I is. get my blanket and my cat curls up with me and I can have some hot tea. Like, I just, I love fall. I love yep. everything about fall. It's the best. It is. Yeah. Uh, last one for you. What is the word that comes to your mind when you think of Shattered State College? Um, I think I would say opportunity. Because um, given kind of where we're located, the school provides so many opportunities that don't exist in this region otherwise. You know, it's not just a matter of go five miles down the road and pick another college like it is in some parts of the country. Um, and so, you know, especially given our the amount of uh, first-generation students we have, that there's just a lot of opportunities for students here that they wouldn't get were it not for the school. Um, and from my own perspective, you know, I get to teach so many more classes um, and a diversity of classes that I probably wouldn't get to teach in a lot of other places, um, which can be kind of exhausting. But it's also really exciting because I get to um, engage with students in a lot of different ways on a lot of different levels and kind of... Um, think about my field from so many different angles in a way that's really exciting. Wonderful. Great answer. Yep. Well, um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. We appreciate having you here. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun.